0: This morning's uh, passage is one I suspect you know very well, and you've got several choices available to you. The the text is found on page 3 in the bulletin, so you can follow along there. You can also follow in the Pew Bible, uh, which is on page 874, so if you want to follow that along in front of you, or you could just listen. This is in the English Standard Version, and so I'll be reading. I'm actually going to be following on page 3 in the, uh, in the bulletin. It's a parable that Jesus tells. It begins, Luke 15, verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for this wonderful parable and I I do pray that you would help us now as we consider it a familiar one to most of us. But I pray that you would give us fresh insight, maybe not novel insight, but fresh insight, apply it to us and let us see the message of the Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure there's no more famous or love parable than the one I just read. To Christians and non-Christians, the drama of a child who leaves home, casting aside every value, relationship that he's been taught, she's been taught, breaking the parent's heart, seemingly lost for good, and then the joy of return. It's, it's been in books and movies, redone, retold. Some of you may have lived it as a child, as a parent, Maybe you've lived long enough that you've been on both sides of it. And maybe you're in the middle of that story right now. The parable has also been portrayed on canvas numerous times by different artists. In fact, uh, by Rembrandt more than once. Uh, One less famous one is where uh, Rembrandt actually portrayed himself as the prodigal in a brothel where his wife is sitting on his lap. But the more famous one, uh, hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, where I saw it, and some of you were with me in 2002 on a mission trip there. Um, and there's a reproduction hanging, as you know, in, uh, in what we call the parlor. I had to figure out what the alcove meant. That's what our brochure says. But it's, uh, it's hanging there. The, the return of the prodigal son. And it's inspired and deeply touched many, the picture of the return of the prodigal. As we consider the passage this morning, there there are two main things I I really want to stress. One of them is an issue of vocabulary, the word prodigal. It's it's really not a common word in the English language. And some of you, uh, English is not even your first language. So I want to make sure we understand what the word prodigal actually does not mean. Okay, Prodigal does not mean run away and return. Okay, That may be news to some of us. That's not what prodigal means. Prodigal, prodigious refers to lavish, extravagant. And so, we, for some reason, this caught on hundreds of years ago. The prodigal son, we're simply talking about a son who spent money like crazy. And that's really not even the, the main point of the passage. So, I'm going to be using the word prodigal actually in the correct meaning as I refer to the prodigal, the prodigal habit of the son. But that's really not the main point. The fact is that he's lost and that's, that's that's a better term for this parable, the lost son. The other thing that is important to note is the occasion for the telling of this parable. You know, we, when we hear this parable, we always concentrate on this son who goes away, deeply hurts the father and comes back. And what we always concentrate on is this. No matter what you do, No matter what sins you commit, the Father will always welcome you back with great forgiveness. And that's not wrong. But that actually isn't the main point of the parable. Did you know that? That's actually not why primarily Jesus is telling the parable. We have to understand what the original context was. And the way you get that is looking at the first two verses of Luke 15. So I didn't have you necessarily... Look at your Bible as you're reading because if you, I didn't have Sue print that part of the passage. But in Luke 15, the occasion of the parable is Jesus is there. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Luke 15 verse 1. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're complaining about the company that Jesus keeps. And then Jesus tells three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But he doesn't just tell the story about one son. He tells the story about two sons. And what we discover, and as I'll be stressing, is that in fact both sons are quite lost. Both sons. And so I'm going to be... Showing you in this parable, it's, it's a little bit different maybe from the stress that you've often heard before. It is a story about forgiveness. Oh, it is. But it's really much more than that. There's much more going on. So we're going to be looking at the three main characters in this parable. We are going to be looking at the younger son. We are going to be looking at the father. And then we're going to be looking at the elder son. So let's look at the younger son. And I actually call this Prodigal sin. Prodigal sin understanding the word in its proper use. The prodigal sin of the younger son, if that's not a tongue twister. So you have heard, of course, the audacious nature of the request that this son makes. He goes to the father and he says, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. Now this is a parable. Okay, So this has never happened before, probably in the whole history of time. Probably never. And as Jesus tells this, we're not in that culture and time. So if you had an inheritance coming to you, and you went to your father or grandfather or parents, and you said that exact thing, that would be rather audacious, rather rude. But in that culture, in that time, it's so unheard of, so awful. So obviously it is saying, I'm really not interested in waiting until you die. I want my inheritance right now. So it's such an affront. It's such a shame that Semitic commentators, those from the Middle East, have said that the only proper response of the father would be to beat the son. We don't care how big he is. To beat the son and to throw him out of the house. So that would be the normal response. But that's not what this father does. Again, this is a parable. Okay? So what the father does is such an unusual response to such an unusual request. But it's a parable. Okay? So this understand what the son is doing. I want no relationship with you. I want your things. Okay? I want them now. And this is the kind of attitude that some people actually have with their heavenly father. Or whom they call their Heavenly Father. This is actually the kind of relationship that some very smiley, toothy preachers on TV suggest that we can have with God because we can have things. We can have health. We can have wealth because what we're taught often is okay, serve God for what he can give to you. And this is really what the son is doing. I'm really not interested in a relationship with you. I'm just interested in your things. I want them now. I want my best life now. And that's what he's doing. Okay, I want it now. And the father gives it to him. He says, go ahead, have it. So he's not seeking God. He's seeking God's blessings. He's using God. So incredibly, the father complies. Now, we know, this is a detail not given in the parable, but we know from that culture that the way it was done is that the eldest son always received a double portion. And so that term, if you ever hear double portion, it's, be, it's the way of keeping wealth in the family. So the eldest one would always get the double portion and then the rest, half of it, the rest would be divided. So if there are two sons, that means that two-thirds of the property is uh, um, in, among the uh, uh, son and then the rest is the um, second son. And so the father complies, he splits it that way. Obviously, the younger one liquidates it very quickly, And runs off to some foreign country And does who knows what But the elder son has obviously figured out What he would have done With that money as we read later And he goes through it Very, very quickly No rules He's his own God And this is apparently The picture of sin We're supposed to see this As the worst thing That anybody can do Now first of all We're not in this culture So we might think, oh, no, 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 the worst thing we could do is murder. The worst thing we could do is adultery. The worst thing we could do is steal. No, no, the worst thing you could do is do that to your father in that culture. The worst thing you could do is to take land, take the wealth from your family, and sell it like that. Okay? So we have to try to understand that. What Jesus is giving is an example of one of the worst things that anybody could do in that culture. And then he does it, and then look at what he does with it. He runs through it like water. Now, put yourself in that place and say, no, so what's the worst thing that I could do? I could decide, I'm not going to follow the rules. I'm going to be my own God, because that's what sin is. Sin is when you simply say, I am not going to follow God's rules. I'm going to be my own God. Sin, as Archie Sproul often said, sin is simply treason. It's saying, I will be my own God. I will spit in the face of God. I will do exactly what I want to do to do. Rebellion against God in every way. Big or small, it's treason. And so we're talking about prodigal sin here. The the son just goes, uh, the biggest laugh of the you can think of, until the money runs out. Now, you'd hope that this is what happens. You'd hope that somebody would follow that path to the end and then realize, I'm done. That's not what happens with everybody. Some people never come back. But this son, I love the way it's worded, he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. That's what you hope will happen. And then he realizes while well, he's in the muck of the pigs, talk about an imagery, okay, he's about as low as can be. Then he realizes, this is crazy. Okay, he actually comes back to his own mind and he realizes this is nuts. And he decides to come back. Now, I struggled with this trying to figure out is this genuine repentance or is this quite practical? Saying, here I am starving and I really would be much better off if I go grovel. You know, so it's a parable. So it's really hard to figure out. You know, should should we try to figure out every detail here? But he realizes what I've done is a horrible thing to my father and what I've done is a horrible thing against God because I have broken every rule possible. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my father and the only thing I should do is to go back. And so that's what he does. So he he comes up with his humble speech, and he heads home. And so we have the prodigal sin of the younger son. Now, look what happens as the son comes home. We come to the father. Now, many times this has been sentimentalized where we have the father every day looking out on the horizon. It's a parable. We don't have that detail. We don't really know, but we do know that the father that day at least, sees the son, he recognizes how he walks, I don't know, but he sees the son coming. Could it be? My son is coming? And what would we do? Many of us would be sitting on a porch, this better be good, we wouldn't be quite ready to receive someone back, we'd really want to hear the full speech, a full accounting and so on, that's not what this father does. We've also heard, probably in this parable, the absolute indignity of the wealthy, older father who runs. Well, th- there's a lot of legitimacy to that one. Men don't run. okay? Not in that culture, not in that time. I mean, the idea that he runs. I don't know how far he runs because obviously the servants are within shouting distance. So he runs out to the son. That's quite amazing. And before the son utters a word, and you've got to figure he's in pretty lousy condition, he hugs him. And he kisses him. So that means he's already forgiven him. He's already figured out why the son is coming back. So that tells you something about this father. The extraordinary nature of the father. We're talking about prodigal forgiveness here absolute forgiveness. And the father isn't interested in hearing the speech. He hears a little bit of it. He, he hears, yes, the father, the son knows, okay, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm not worthy. It's like, shut up, okay? And he says, get a robe, get get shoes, get the ring that probably is the family signet ring that says, you're not going to be a servant. You're going to be a son. Okay? You're not a son. You're not going to be a servant. You're going to be a son. The father takes the initiative. You know, um, it's difficult to preach a parable like this and not, deal, not completely deal with sexist language, as I keep talking about son and heir, but of course that's the nature of it, right? I mean, only sons inherit, and he brings him back as a son. But you know, we're told uh, in Galatians 3 that, you know, all of us, male and female, are heirs, and so I, I really have to use the sonship language but that male and female are heirs. But those of us that have difficulty with that, remember, men are brides of Christ too. So it, it, it kind of goes both ways to a certain degree. So we, the, the, the son is reinstated as a son. He's not going to be a servant. The, the forgiveness is prodigal just as the sin was prodigal. Now think about this who's listening? The Pharisees, the scribes. This father is an idiot in their eyes. Okay, there's no way that this son should be taken back. There's no way. And, and and the shame of what his father did, the shame of what the son did, now is compounded by taking him back. What a fool this father is for bringing him back. Has he no shame? Has he no dignity? And the elder brother, of course, we know is going to be asking that in a few minutes. Now, how can that be fair? But, you know, forgiveness, have you ever noticed? Forgiveness is not fair. I've noticed that. Forgiveness is not a fair thing, is it? But forgiveness does cost. You know, we've used that, we use that language in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Okay? Particularly in Protestant churches. Forgive us our debts. That's a very telling word, isn't it? Forgive us our debts. Because we understand that when somebody does something wrong to us, it is a debt and someone has to pay for it. And when we forgive, who pays? We absorb it. We absorb the debt ourselves when we forgive. There's always a payment. There always is. That's why forgiveness is hard. Because we choose to absorb it. We say, okay, I'm not going to make you pay. I will absorb the debt. You know what? The father actually absorbs the debt. He says, I'm going to take you back and you're now going to live off the wealth. You squandered a third of our property. Okay, now I'm going to take you back. I'm going to kill the fattened calf. I'm going to throw a big party and you're going to live as a son on now a third of the wealth that we had. It's costly. But you know, when we relate to God the Father, you know the cost that forgiveness was for him because it cost the life of his son Jesus Christ. Great cost. The forgiveness we see assures sinners that God forgives the greatest insult, the greatest act of rebellion and treason against him. Prodigal sin. Prodigal forgiveness. The forgiveness is prodigal and it's displayed in the party. Okay, but... We understand that the the sin that the son commits, as great as it is, the father is able to forgive. Then comes the elder son. Now, when we meet the elder son, the party is already going on. Now, this guy's a piece of work. Um, Have you ever wondered, like I have, why he is unaware of the party? There must be a big place because he's out working in the field at a great distance. So there must be quite a, quite a big estate. He's not even aware of the party, which tells me, again, let's not press too many details. It is a parable. But everybody must have realized he wouldn't care. He's really not interested that his brother has come back. So he, they don't even tell him. I mean, how long does it take to kill and cook a calf? You know, so all that time, he doesn't even know that this is going on. And when the elder brother finds out that his brother has come back, he refuses to go inside. And look what he says to the father. He says, all these years I have, you know, I've, I looked at several different English translations, and I look back at the Greek. It says, these years I've served. That's actually not a good translation. It's, I've slaved. For you, What a great relationship. I've slaved for you and never disobeyed a command. He's a servant. I've slaved for you. That's what he sees himself as. He's just as lost as the younger son. His relationship with the father is just as alienated because he sees himself as working in order to get the inheritance. He, he has no better relationship with his father than the younger son has with his father. That says a lot. His obedience is to get things. And the father has to go out to him as well. And he's not successful, apparently, in bringing him back in. He's the good son. He's obedient. But he's manipulative. This is the kind of person, and you know people like this, you may be like this, that get really angry when life doesn't go well. After all I've done for you, God, after all I've done for you, you don't even give me a goat. Do you know people like that? That get really angry when life doesn't go well because look at all the good things I've been doing, God, and this is the way you treat me. That tells you you're an elder brother. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Elder brothers are very judgmental. They're not really sure about their position because they're always working and working and working, but they're very sure about everybody else's position. They're very judgmental. They're... they're prodigally self-righteous. I would never do that. This son of yours, I checked the original translation of that also. That's a very good translation. It doesn't say your son. That son of yours. Now, it's not the same thing as husbands and wives who say your son needs a diaper change. okay? Or, you know, uh, your your daughter's in trouble over there. That's not the same thing like husbands and wives do. This son of yours, total separation. I I don't even know him. He's no part of me. Relationally, so judgmental, so unforgiving because elder brothers can't forgive because they're so, they would never do those things. They're so judgmental. They're so unaware of their own sins. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is telling this parable to Pharisees and scribes. Okay? Guess who the elder brother is? The Pharisees and scribes. Guess who the younger brother is? The tax collector's and, sinners. and so he's warning the Pharisees and scribes. You see, tax collectors and sinners, they're making messes of their lives, but they know it. And when they hear the gospel and they hear grace, many of them respond. They've got nothing to hide. And they come in and they rejoice and they accept forgiveness and they say, I'm a mess. And when they are forgiven, they have love They have grace. You can bet that younger son changes entirely when his father welcomes him in. Okay, I'm adding details again. But you can bet he's transformed. But this elder brother knows nothing, nothing about grace, forgiveness. So the Pharisees and scribes, they're the elder brother. They can't rejoice when they see sinners repent because they don't even understand that. What we see is prodigal self righteousness. You know, it's it's hard enough to repent of bad things. It's really tough, brothers and sisters, to repent of our goodness. Do we repent of our good things, of our self righteousness? The the English preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, used to like to ask people, Are you a Christian? And he used to get responses this is back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. He would get answers like this Of course I'm a Christian. Well, that tells you a lot. Or a more common answer, well, I'm trying to be, that's a bad answer too. Because if you answer a question like that, I'm trying to be a Christian, what does that tell you? That you think being a Christian is trying to be good, and that's an elder brother. Where the younger brother would say, oh, I can't believe that I've been accepted. I can't believe that God has forgiven me. That's the younger brother. Flannery O'Connor, a novelist, she died so young. uh, Some of the poignant quotes, I came across this quote. She she was talking about this uh, this man named Hazel Motes in a a book called Wise Blood. And this is the quote that she wrote. See, See if you can catch this. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. I better say that again. I'll read the last part. The way to avoid Jesus... Was to avoid sin. Do you understand that? If you could just avoid sinning, hey, you don't need a Savior. And that's what elder brothers do. Good people can be quite lost believing that their own Savior, you don't need Jesus if you can save yourself. And you know, churches are full of them. And we probably have some elder brothers here. Many of us at least have that tendency, don't we? that elder brother tendency. And many of us, what really happens is we come in as younger brothers and then we, then we despise self-righteous people and then we start in our despising self-righteous people, we become elder brothers. So it's a real problem we've got with self-righteousness. Elder brothers are more lost than younger brothers. John Gershner, a mentor to R.C. Sproul, this is the way he put I'm not using a bad word here. I'm using it in its proper sense. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Self-righteousness is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And many, many Christians, they start out really believing in salvation by grace through faith, and then they start moving toward, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I'm really good. And they move to self-righteousness and start judging everybody else. Are you an elder brother? Far better to be the younger brother who can see his or her sin and repent than the younger brother who can't even see his sin. As the story ends, we don't know if the brother goes in. Well, actually we do. Okay, We kind of figure he doesn't. He's not going to go in. And we can imagine The Pharisees and scribes are probably furious because they're not stupid. They know what Jesus is doing. They know who he's talking about. I plead with you to repent of your elder brotherness because your self-righteous goodness will lead you straight to hell. It will. You can't save yourself. And if you're a younger brother, no matter what you've done, Your father is ready to receive you. Absolutely ready to receive you. He joyously welcomes people who know that they need to be saved, if they will come. But for all of us who are in between, and that's probably the majority of us, we can slip into elder brotherness very easily, despising self-righteous until we become exactly that. So these three parables, you have the Shepherd seeking the lost sheep. You have the woman seeking the lost coin. And who goes out and looks for the younger brother? Nobody. Nobody, really. Why didn't the elder brother go look for his younger brother? We need an elder brother who would leave home, who would put aside his inheritance and go out into a crazy, sinful world, into the muck, and dig us out and find us and strip off his own clothes and give us a robe righteousness and put a ring on our finger and call us a son instead of a servant we have that elder brother don't we yeah his name is Jesus he says to the father see I've brought the one who is lost and as the father embraces and kisses us he announces to heaven we must celebrate my child has come home he was dead she was dead But now is alive. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are our Father, if we know our elder brother Jesus Christ. So now we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our own righteousness, of our own good deeds, and as we lay everything down at the cross. We pray that you would receive us. We thank you for Jesus, our elder brother. We thank you for your mercy and grace in him. And I pray this in the wonderful Savior's name. Amen.